Please join me in prayer. God of love, we ask that you would help us join Jesus in that Greek territory, that we might be there with the woman of Syrophoenician origin, with the man who is deaf and cannot speak, and with the community of the letter of James. And what they saw and heard and felt, we may see and feel and hear and again in new ways. Let your spirit descend and live through us. This we pray, O God of abundance, and let the people say, Amen. Amen. It is great to be back with you up here in the sanctuary. Many of you know that I love summer worship. I love the way we do it. I love that we sit in the round and we can see each other's faces. And we sing better down there than we do up here. And it is more connecting. We do communion every week. And if you read my blog this week, you know we had record numbers. Not to get too metric about it, but we went 40 to 50% above what we normally do. And we had a great lineup of speakers. I actually get a little sad when we come back up here because I feel so much farther away from you. (laughs) But I love, I have to say, walking in this morning, this excitement of the choir being back in full force with Mary on the timpani and Susan on the organ and all of you here together today. It is great to see all of you and welcome you back from wherever your summer travels have taken you. As I said in the blog this week, one of our members says that God goes to Maine in the summer, and some of you followed her there. I'm glad you followed her back here because she was alive and well in this place this summer. We had a great lineup of speakers, some of which I wrote you about. We had some feminist theologians. That's kind of regular stuff for us. But we also had, we had uh, some doctors who told about their experiences working with people overseas. We had a gay millennial neuroscientist who told us the fact that he goes to church at all is a miracle. We had one of our members, who you'll hear from later, tell about seeing the image of God with trans kids at camp this summer. We had a wonderful music Sunday. We also had one of our 15-year-olds give a great and powerful testimony of her experiences in our sister city of Nicaragua. I'm probably leaving someone out, but you get the gist of it. And as I traveled on my vacation, to which I'm so grateful to you for this vacation, I brag about you. I read your testimonials to my friends and colleagues. I hope it's okay. I tell them how blessed I feel to serve among such thoughtful and faithful people. And each year I'm here, I fall deeper in love with all of you. And that is a great gift. It's a great gift to have a congregation like this that is thoughtful and engaged. And yet, I listen to the letter from James, and I wonder, what does James have to say to us today? James is talking about discrimination and partiality, and closing up shop, and not letting new people in. And I wonder, because I think we're pretty good at welcoming people. In fact, newcomers tell us that all the time, which is a good thing to say. Many pastors would kill for that. Am I right, Reverend Chang? To have a church that welcomes people abundantly and really means it, which is great. But you heard from James, he said, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
One of my favorite Sundays this summer was when we had 30 unhoused artists join us in worship. And their chaplain, Laura Schatzer, one of our members, preached to us and told us about God, the image of God and creativity. And some of you stayed and bought the works of art. And we put out a call for volunteers to host a lunch for these good artists who were coming in our midst. They go to an art studio every Wednesday at Emanuel Church on Newbury Street. And only one of our new members signed up to help with this lunch. She's an art therapist. She's a brave soul. And I said, okay, let's see if we can get you some help. And I emailed the regulars and the people who knew how to do lunch in our parlor. And I said, let's make it really nice. And you went in there, and it was purple tablecloths and china and silverware and glasses and white roses on the table. It was a beautiful banquet for our guests that day. And it makes you feel good to be a part of a church that does that. It makes you want to pat yourself on the back and say, good for us, which is right. But I still wonder how this passage might convict us further. You see, I love the book of James. You may know that in Christian history, it has a bad rap. Martin Luther hated this book, this letter. He thought it had no place in the New Testament. But I disagree with Martin Luther. A lot of people did it thought, think that it does not really articulate the tenets of the Christian faith. One of the big debates is that it emphasizes works as a product of our faith and not grace alone, which is a detraction from what Paul and Martin Luther like to teach us. I'm willing to put aside a thousand years of theological debate on that, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, because this is actually not an evangelistic document to convert people to the faith. It's an in-house document about how you and I should live and practice our faith as a community of Christ. And I think it's pretty good, it's unstinting, it will take you 10 to 15 minutes to read the whole letter. I charge you, encourage you to do that this week. You can do one chapter a day, five chapters in total. It'll take you less time than to check your email, your Instagram, or Facebook and be more rewarding. It's full of all sorts of pithy things because Jane covers a lot of issues. How we handle our speech, economic and business practices, handling temptation, discrimination, as we heard today, how we work with people in need, and how we live our life together. He says unstinting, hard things, like whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete. Or let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Or be doers of the word and not hearers only. As I think about us and how, as Susan describes us, a church full of heart who like to see things get done, this is a great passage for us. If any think they are religious but do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. The religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, care for the orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. I love this one for all of you teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged by a stricter standard. <laughs> Show by your good life and your good works the gentleness born of wisdom. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And anyone who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Okay, no question. There it is, in the letter of James. And as he said to us today, God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith 
to be heirs of the kingdom that God has promised to those who love God. But we have dishonored the poor. Part of this summer was a group of us went down to the common to see how Common Cathedral does their worship down in the common. Many of you know this. They do worship every single Sunday of the year regardless of the weather. It can be as cold as ice and below freezing or hot and humid as it was on July 1st when we went. How many went with me that day? Right. And we went down there, and the first thing we do is serve them lunch, which we had prepared, and then we serve them cake with the icing melting in the hot sun. As we were serving the cake, I turned to Carrie, and I said, you see that guy over there? It was a guy who was sunburnt in a t-shirt, not very woolly-headed. It looked like he spent a lot of his life being road-worn and put away wet. And I said, that guy is a Latter-day prophet. I'm pretty sure of it. And sure enough, when it came time for the Gospel of Mark, he was our liturgist. And he stood up and he says, it says here in the Gospel of Mark, there was a woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years. And he went on. And then we looked over there and there was one guy who had his reefer ready to do a tote during worship. And I thought, okay, we'll see how this plays out. Someone pointed out that the common police were right there. And he said, oh, oh okay, I'll put it away. And he went back to his bongos. We had some other people who were fighting. We had a guy who I couldn't tell if he was on drugs or off his meds, but he was fidgeting and all over the place. And he was getting really rankled and upset. And then a woman came in in a tight halter, thin woman with tight jeans, some burns on her body, and they got into a fight in the middle of worship. And I watched as the pastors of that church on the common just kind of very quietly helped break up that altercation and sit in between them. I noticed another guy who came in late on the bench on the back, like many of us come in late, except that he looked like he was in about five years' worth of medical need and care, that he hasn't slept in a proper bed for weeks and weeks, maybe months. I didn't sit near him, but I'm pretty sure he didn't smell great. He was exactly the kind of person I think James is talking about. And I just wondered how it would be if he walked in here to our church. I also wondered what has happened in his life from his birth, perhaps, that has made it a broken life for him. I also wondered what spiritual gifts does he have to share with me that I know nothing about. Afterwards, I said to Amanda, their executive director at Common Cathedral, I said, you all strike me as den mothers with a bunch of unruly scouts. And she said, that's kind of how it feels some Sundays. But she said, I know I've done my job if I have no idea what the sermon was about. (laughs) Because I've been paying attention to all the worshipers. In fact, the sermon was interactive, and the people in the congregation helped preach, as we sometimes do here. And they talked about their own pain. The woman with the burns talked about her burns. When it came time for prayers, well, well, it was interesting when it came time for prayers, because that was the week that they were separating families at the border. And it was clear that it was on the minds of all these people. It made me wonder how they get their news if they don't have internet accounts or Facebook. But I guess they get their news like any of us can, which is word of mouth or just passing by any TV set we see playing in the open in the internet age. It was a very present concern for these people, who, many of whom's families have been broken up a long time. But the woman with the halter top got up and she said, we all need to pray for Donald Trump. Because he's not right in the head. And we got an amen sister on that. And I thought, you know, 
If you live on the street, you just don't mess around. You just say what you think. I was struck by her concern and her compassion. Now, it was a real example of church, and it made me think about how we do church here, because in the summertime, I do a lot of fussing around in the hour before worship to make sure the chairs are all aligned and there are rows, and that people who are as tall as me or taller have plenty of room to stretch out, and people twice my size can move around in the warm air and be okay, and that all the fans are oscillating. One of our members watched me do this Sunday after Sunday, and she said, Kent, do you have OCD? And I said, no, I just like it to be that we give a, sh- a holy sh- that is what I said. I was unbridled. And Amy came to my defense and she said, no, he doesn't have OCD. He's just particular. <laughs> I am particular because I'm always thinking about who's coming in the first time in this store. Some of you today came in the first time in this store. And I know what a wonderful, warm, welcoming, faithful church we are. And I want you to feel that the moment you come in the door, and I want all of us to make sure that happens. Because the question I want to ask is, who's not yet in the pews? Who needs to be? In a town where at the high school 44 languages are spoken and 69 nationalities are represented, who in this town of Brookline is missing here at our table? Who is missing in our pews, and how will we welcome them in? And, you know, I believe firmly that what we do here in church, as you know, is practice for what we do in the rest of our life. That we get to practice here in this workshop known as church how we should be. And I believe James is saying, don't just show, don't just refrain from partiality and discrimination here in church, but take it out into the world with you. You and I have watched over the past two years as the thin veil on racism, homophobia, misogyny and transphobia has been ripped aside so we can look it more nakedly in the face. James says that is committing a sin. When we practice the kind of bigotry, we are not following God's law. It says it in Leviticus, it says it in the prophets, and it says it in Jesus' gospel. But here's something else I think we have to think about. In the wider circle of American culture, who do we need to reach out and let in, where are we being partial and showing discrimination? I don't know if you saw the report last year, the color of wealth in Boston that was reported in the Globe, where it said the household median net worth of white people in Boston is $247,500. For Caribbean blacks, it's $12,000. For Puerto Ricans, $3,020. For Dominicans, it's zero dollars. And for U.S. blacks, the median household net worth is eight dollars. They published another article saying that's not a typo. You see, 35 years of economic policy in this country have shut a lot of people out, and I don't have to tell you that the gap between rich and poor, it keeps getting wider and wider. And it didn't start with the current government. It started a long time ago. And you and I are all a part of that. So when I think about how we take James' gospel into the world, I think about how we reach out beyond our borders and work for policies and work for justice efforts that help level the playing field so that people like the Syrophoenician woman will be brought in, so that the deaf man who can't speak will be brought in, and we might help them 
to speak again and to hear the good word they need to hear. That the demons might leave their spirits, that they might be healed and brought to health. I believe this is our mission as Christians in a capitalist republic, the richest, most powerful country in the world. Because it doesn't just extend to our sidewalks and homeless shelters and bread kitchen, soup kitchens, but it extends to two-thirds of the rest of the world. Our Stretching into Justice team did a survey with some of you last year. Not many of you filled it out, but they came to the conclusion that our next priority should be looking at inequality and how we address issues of inequality. I will tell you, it's one of the issues that I went into the voting booth two Novembers ago to think about, and I think we should all be thinking about. We have yet to figure out how we're going to study and address this, but it's something we can all get on board with, because it's something you and I can practice every day of our lives, not only with the money and resources we give, but the spiritual energy that we give to other people, the ways we welcome people in and do not show partiality or discrimination. This is our charge, fellow Christians, fellow followers of Christ, that we may show no impartiality, that we may welcome everyone just as God welcomes everyone. And whatever good gift we get here of love, compassion, and a sense of justice, it is ours to take in the world and figure out the ways to share it. And I feel so blessed to be in this work with you as we go forward together. Amen.